0: Do you find it hard to believe God's promises? Think of the things that God has promised us. Romans ten nine. because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Or Matthew 11, 28 and 29, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Or Philippians 4, verse 19, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory. Or 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. These are pretty huge promises, aren't they? They almost seem, if you think about it, too good to be true, don't they? Is this just us deluding ourselves? Is this some form of positive thinking or mind trick? Or are those promises real? And will God honour them? Well, by the time we get to our passage this morning, God has already made Abraham some big promises. The promise of a great people, a land, and great blessing. And this is an incredible set of promises if you think about it. When God made those promises to Abraham... He wasn't even in the land that God had promised to him. He was nowhere near it. At that point, Abraham, Abraham didn't even have one child. And he was very old, you know, in his 80s or 90s uh, or 70s. In terms of blessing, well, he was still living in his father's house. Now, we're not talking sort of living in his basement, you know, he's still living with his mum uh, and dad in, in his 70s. But you can imagine that. He hasn't got so much that he has to move like we've seen happen in Genesis. He's not been greatly blessed there. Well, now, as we see Abraham here, Abraham has begun to be materially blessed. He's begun to be a blessing to the nations as he rescued Lot in the last passage along with the captured people of Sodom. He's in the land that he's been promised. But there's one spanner in the works still no children. Still no heir. All this could be for nothing. All God's promises could come to nothing if there's no one to inherit the promise. And this is at the forefront of Abraham's mind. But far from shying away from his promises, God reaffirms them to Abraham. In fact, he makes them more specific. In fact, he makes them even bigger. And he assures Abraham that they will happen. Because if God doesn't keep his promises, and let's face it, we may as well all go home. There's no point in us being here. But God has given us passages like this to show us just how far he will go. To assure us that his promises will be kept. Which is huge, isn't it? Our very eternal destiny hangs on the fact that God keeps his promises. So let's see what he shows us to assure us. First of all, the blessing promise expanded. Have a look again at verse one. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision. Fear not, Abraham, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Now, God had promised in Genesis 12 to bless Abraham, to make his name great, to make him a blessing to all nations. And here he expands on that promise to Abraham. He begins by saying, fear not. Now that's easy to miss, isn't it? But that in itself is a blessing, isn't it? The Bible tells us that we're sinful. We were just seeing that in the video we saw before. Many people in the Bible, when they hear from God or come face to face with God, drop down as though dead. God has that burning holiness that we saw in the video. To meet with God in that state is a fearful thing. People often say, "You know, well, if I could just see God, I'd believe. But actually, the Bible says if we see God in our sinful state, we drop down dead. But God, as he speaks to Abraham, says, fear not. Do you know that's the most repeated command in the Bible? Fear not. Probably the one we need to hear the most as well, isn't it? And it's not just God who's not to fear. He's not to fear anything. I think that's the implication of what he says. Not the future, not failure, not man, not anything. Perhaps he's wondering at this point whether he should have accepted some of the plunder from the king of Sodom. I mean, we're told it was after these things. These things was that battle that they'd had and Abraham had refused anything from the king of Sodom. Perhaps Abraham was wondering if God would always fight his battles. And as if to reply, God says, I am your shield. He has no need to fear because God is his shield. A shield provides protection from his enemy. He'd have just seen that in action only a few days before. Now, we don't have battles or, you know, we we don't fight in battles like Abraham did. But all of us have shields, you know. Anything we use to defend ourselves when people attack, that's our, our shield, it might be our own sense of superiority. You know, people say something to us, oh, well, what do they know? It might be our humour and wit we use, sort of use as a, a shield against things. A shield could be somewhere that we hide. It might be under the covers in bed, or it might be that we hide in a hobby that we have, or we might hide in a sinful addiction like alcohol, pornography, gambling. Anything that sort of shuts the world out for a while, that's our shield, But God is saying here to Abraham, we don't need those things. Abraham doesn't need those things. God promises to be our shield and our defender. That's like that great old hymn, isn't it? We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. And that's true. God's blessing to Abraham here is that he will be his shield. He needs no other help. We need no other help. God will defend him, God will protect him. God will defend us, will protect us. No harm will ultimately come to him because God is his shield, it's a blessing. It's even greater than the ones before. God will protect him and help him. He also tells him your reward will be great. Now, lots of the older translations have, uh, he will be your very great reward, meaning God himself is our reward. The grammar in the passage is a bit unclear as to which it is. But either way, it links back to the previous passage again. Remember, Abraham has foregone the reward offered to him by the king of Sodom. He's turned down the riches he was offered. But now God promises him a reward, be it himself or some other blessing. See, what he's reminding Abraham is that he's not living this pilgrim life in a foreign land for nothing, God has a reward in store for him. It's the promise of ultimate blessing. Not just temporal and physical, but beyond that too. Now, whether the reward is God himself or not, it ultimately is God himself anyway. Because he is the source of all good, isn't he? He's the source of all that's worthy. If he's thinking about heaven as the sort of blessing that's coming, well, what, what is it that makes heaven great? Well, God is there. That's why heaven is wonderful, isn't it? And we will be there. God will be his reward. He's got something wonderful planned for him, better than the riches of Sodom. So he's lost nothing for going those things. God has something even greater in store for him. God has a huge plan for Abraham and his descendants. God is promising to bless Abraham. Now, Abraham doesn't question any of this but he does point out what he perceives to be a flaw in God's big plan. If you're going to bless me, God, well, there's a bit of a problem. Have a look at verse two. But Abraham said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Elisa of Damascus. Now, it's clear from the promises, isn't it, that God's plans for Abraham are to some degree in the long term, aren't they? It was unlikely that the great nation that he would become would just be one generation. That would just be his kids would be the great nation. That would be a lot of children, wouldn't it, uh, for Sarah to bear. And the possession of the land would take a certain number of people, wouldn't it, for them to take over the land. It needed to be something big. So Abraham spots that all this great blessing, though, is worth nothing if it isn't passed on to somebody else. If it doesn't carry on into future generations. And the problem is that Abraham has no physical heir. He tells you that a servant in his house will inherit. So think of sort of the elderly person who has no family these days, who leaves everything to their carer who's looked after them in, in later years. It's that sort of deal here. And in Abraham's uh, culture, that was expected. You couldn't sort of give it to the RSPCA or anything like that. You pass it on to someone with, within your servant, if you like, who looked after you while you were old. And in this case, it's a Syrian, uh, Elisa, because there's no uh, family to inherit. So, God speaks to Abraham again and explains his promise to him. Sorry, the people promise explains. Explains his promise to him. Have a look at verses 3 to 6. And Abraham, uh, and Abraham said, uh, sorry, verses 4 to 6. Behold, the word of the Lord uh, came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God's saying here that it's not through a servant that God's promises will come about. It will be through his very own son. The literal phrase there is a son of his own bowels. That's what it's got in the older translation. You probably say tummy, Um, But it's a promise of a son from his very own body. He's seen as the life giver in that family. From him, from his own uh, body. And an even bigger promise follows. Not just that he's going to have a child, which seems pretty amazing. He's going to tell you what he means by a great people. What he means by a great people is a huge people. He brings Abraham outside and asks him to number the stars. Now I remember reading this as a child and being a bit confused. I grew up in South Leeds, uh, where there's quite a lot of light pollution. And it said, you know, go outside and count the stars. Well, most nights you can't count one, two, three, four. Right, okay, it's so Orion's belt and the North Star. That was basically all you could see. Uh, from where I I grew up. Uh, But actually, there's far more stars in the sky than that. I remember one time being totally amazed. I went on beach missions uh, to Wales, uh, to a youth centre outside Benfleck on Anglesey, and it literally was in the middle of nowhere. You know, There's there's no towns nearby, there's barely a village, and at this point, it was late at night, everybody switched their lights off. No street lights, no nothing. And we were coming back late from the event one night and uh, someone just said, hey, look up. We also stood there, looked up, absolutely gobsmacked. It was amazing, incredible. To this day, it's still one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. There was literally no light pollution. There was a science teacher who was the team leader and he started sort of talking us through, well that's the Milky Way and that's, uh, it looks like a star but actually that's a galaxy that you can see that's sort of just so small in the distance. And you know, the more you stared at it, the more you saw. You thought you could see them all, but the more you sort of eyes adjusted, you could see that there were stars in between the stars. The sort of, close I could get is a sort of picture like that. That's actually, if there's no clouds. That's up in the sky every night. Isn't that incredible? We just can't see it. We spent about half an hour to an hour just staring at the sky. Thousands of things, thousands of upon thousands. And think about it, that's just the ones that we can see from Earth, isn't it? Do you know the record that there are around a hundred billion stars in our galaxy alone? Hundred billion stars in our galaxy. They're believed to be ten billion galaxies. That makes A lot of stars, isn't it? (laughs) It's one with 21 zeros after it, is what they reckon. That's that. That's how many stars there are in the sky. That's an estimate, by the way. Because even science now, to this day, cannot count all the stars. They can only make a guess. With all our science and technology, we still can't do what God says here for Abraham to do. count the stars if you can. Well, we still can't. And God says to Abraham so shall your offspring be. Abraham at this point doesn't even have one child. Not one child, and God says to him, it's even bigger than you thought. This is much bigger than just you being the ancestor of a big country. This is something on a cosmic scale going on here. But how on earth is he going to do it? If we thought the promise was far-fetched before, of him just being of a great nation, well, this is on another level, isn't it? But you know there's something else amazing in this passage? It says, and Abraham believed God. He trusted God. He had faith in what God had told him. And that's the right response, isn't it, to a trustworthy person making you a promise? Faith. You believe them, you trust them. Abraham, despite everything that he can see, despite everything that's happened in his life, believes God's promise that so shall your offspring be. And do you know this verse is one of the most quoted verses in the rest of the Bible? Abraham becomes known as the man of faith. So even though the promise is bigger than before, Abraham still believes God. And as he shows his faith, as he believes God, he becomes a model for the rest of us through the rest of history of the right response to God's promises. But it gets even better. Because God, we're told, sees Abraham's faith and he counts it as righteousness. Have a look again at verse 6. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham was a mixed up man, wasn't he? He did some incredible things like we saw last time, rescuing Lot. But he also did some incredibly stupid and sinful things as well. Lying about his wife. Having a child with his maidservant. He was not righteous. He did not have a perfect moral record. And neither do we. Here's the problem though. We need righteousness. If we're not righteous, then we'll be judged by God as unrighteous. We'll be damned as sinners by God on judgment day. But here is the incredible thing in these verses. God takes Abraham's faith and he counts it to him as righteousness. It's as though he sort of does a currency exchange. You know, what have you got? Five euros. Right, I'll stick it in your account as four pounds forty. That's about what it is at the moment. What have you got? Faith. Right, well, I'll stick it in your account as righteousness. God takes Abraham's faith in lieu of righteousness. So God now is able to declare Abraham righteous, not because he's never done anything wrong, but because he trusts in God, he believes his promises. That's incredible, isn't it? And we too can enjoy that righteous status, not because we're righteous, not because we've never done anything wrong, but because God will take our faith and count it to us as righteousness. And if you want to know exactly what that means, well, we'll come to that in our next passage in Romans when we come back to to Romans. But these are incredible promises that God has made to Abraham. And Abraham here is showing us how to respond in faith. And God is saying that makes him righteous. That's incredible. But there's even more. There's even more that God will do to assure Abraham. And we see that in our last point the land promise signed in blood. Have a look with me at verse 7. And he brought him, uh, sorry, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But Abraham said, "O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought all these, cut them in half and laid them each half against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And the birds of prey came down on the carcasses. Abraham drove them away. God here, as it goes on, promises him the land again. Abraham asks him for assurance, how can I know that I shall possess it? Now that might seem like a bit of a cheeky question, if you think about it. After all, this is God speaking, isn't it? It's not some dodgy guy in a street corner offering you a car or something, is it? But interestingly, God doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't ignore his request. He answers his request. And in a way, that's very familiar to Abraham, but not so for us. To help us understand this, imagine if the Queen summoned you to Buckingham Palace. You've got a private audience with the Queen. And she tells you that next year she intends to give you the whole shire of York. She's going to give you the whole of Yorkshire, because that's what the Queen can do. Now that would be pretty amazing for a star, wouldn't it? And again, you think, this might sound too good to be true. I mean, what did you do to deserve it? Can't seem to think of anything. Would it be so cheeky at that point to ask for something in writing? You want some proof that this would be so, wouldn't you? A title, a deed, a contract, something official. Well, that's what God gives Abraham. An official commitment, a contract, if you like. But whereas you and I would ask for pen and paper, God asked for a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. That's not what we would think of, is it? But what follows is a covenant-making ceremony. What's a covenant-making ceremony? Well, it was familiar in Abraham's day. What you would do is you'd take some animals and you would cut a covenant. That was literally what you'd do. Instead of make a covenant, you cut a covenant. And what was involved with that is that you would take these animals, you'd cut them in half, and you'd lay them out on the floor. So imagine you'd sort of lay them out either side of those mats on the floor. You wouldn't cut up the birds because they're too small. You just sort of lay them at the side. And both parties, what they would do, they would walk through the pathway of these two animals. They'd walk through uh, the dead animals on either side. And what you were doing by doing that was committing yourselves to following what you'd said. You'd be saying, that if, if I don't keep this covenant, may what happened to the animals happen to me. What it was doing was making these promises a matter of life and death, if you like. That's a, a covenant ceremony, and that's what we're sort of going to see take place. And all seems to start with a normal pattern. Abraham understands what God is asking. He takes the animals, cuts them in half, lays them out. And then Abraham waits for further instructions. He scares away the birds that would readily eat up dead carcasses, all fairly normal covenant procedure so far. But then look what happens in verse 12. As the sun was going down, a great sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abraham, "'Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, "'and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. "'But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, "'and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions.'" As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you shall be buried at a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Abraham is put to sleep. Presumably this is God that does it because it's only just sunset. This isn't the middle of the night. And a great and dreadful darkness comes on Abraham. This might not be what you were expecting. Darkness is normally a sign of God's judgment, isn't it? And the Lord speaks to him and tells him what will happen to him and his family. He tells him that he can know for certain that, and what we're expecting here is he's he's going to say, possess the land, aren't we? That seems to be the, the normal thing. But he doesn't, not straight away anyway. He tells him that for 400 years, his family will live outside the promised land. And we'll be slaves and we'll be afflicted. You wouldn't stick that as a quote from God on one of those inspirational posters, would you? That's one of those things you like being told. In other words, if you think things are bad now, they're only going to get worse. But God will rescue them. He will come and judge their enemies and they'll come out even better off and they went in, they'll come out with great possessions. They'll come back to the promised land in the fourth generation when the people of the land have filled their cup of judgment, if you like, to the brim. God will judge them by sending the children of Abraham to take over their land. God here, over 400 years before, tells Abraham about the Exodus, basically. And more than that, he tells them about the conquest of the land, Remember, the book of Genesis is written to that wilderness generation, isn't it? Waiting to take the promised land. What a great encouragement for that first generation, knowing that God not only foresaw all that was happening to them before, but also that they would go into the land as well. This is the plan. Even your father Abraham knew it. But this plan, God is saying, is even more long-term, even more convoluted than you think. It's not just going to be simple sort of graph, wrong way, graph just going straight up. There are going to be all sorts of ups and downs as he keeps his promises. But God says, I will do it. I will bring your family back here. But for a while, it will look like I'm not keeping my promises. But really, I am. For 400 years, you won't even be in the land. But I will give it to you. It's just a matter of time. And God promises to Abraham the whole land. That's what we see in verse 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. He's saying, all of the land is yours. This is the first time God spells out exactly what he means by the land. All the way to the north in the Euphrates and all the way to Egypt in the south. The river there's probably not the River Nile. Uh, there's a river that sort of uh, borders, uh, borders, i It's not even a word, is it? <laughs> borders Egypt uh, and Sinai. So it's probably referring to that river down in the south. He's going to give them the land that currently belongs to all those names in verse 19. This is the first list of that kind that we have. He gets it repeated over and over again, don't we, in Scripture? This is the longest list as well, that are given. Presumably, by the time they get there, some of them have been wiped out already by the others. But it's a reminder, though, that this land is inhabited. It will take a military conquest to do this. But even though that's true, God is still promising them the land. Abraham himself, though, won't be that military commander. That's what he's telling him. He will die in peace at a good old age. And it will be his offspring that take the land. And for confirmation, God now appears as a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. That's a pillar of fire and a pillar of yeah, smoke. Have a look at verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between those pieces. It sort of looks a little bit like God appears to them later on. If you think about the wilderness generation, they were used to following a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Well, here God appears as a smoking firepot and a flaming torch. And he passes between the pieces of the dead animals. God walks through the path to cut that covenant with Abraham. God enters into a life and death covenant with him. He's saying, if you like, if I break this, may I be broken. And if God, were, God saying it were not enough, God has now signed the deal in blood, so to speak. He has absolutely committed himself to seeing God's uh, His promises to Abraham fulfilled. But do you notice there's something else that's a little bit different about this covenant making ceremony to the one that I described? Abraham doesn't walk through, does he? Abraham doesn't take that path through the dead animals. In fact, God's put into sleep. That's about as passive as you can get, isn't it, really, in a, in a covenant making situation? There's no bargain with Abraham. It's not you do this and I'll do that. God commits himself unilaterally, by himself, to keeping the covenant. This keeping of the covenant does not depend on man, but on God. All Abraham needs to do is trusting God to do it. Which is exactly what we see Abraham do. So how is this an encouragement to us living 4,000 years after these promises were made? Well, can I give you three things to take away from this passage? Firstly, there can be delays and diversions in promises. There can be delays and diversions in promises. God prepares Abraham for this, doesn't he? And we should be prepared for this too. Abraham couldn't see how humanly speaking God could keep his promises. It looked to Abraham like God's promise might fail as he had no heir. But when we're dealing with God, we're not humanly speaking, are we? We're speaking with God. Even in the midst of the darkness, confusion and impossibility, God was working out his promises to Abraham. And that can be true in our lives too. All can look black. Disaster can look round the corner. But even in the midst of that, God is working out his promises to us. What seem like delays and diversions from our perspective are normal. They're just God working out his promises in a way that we didn't expect. So there can be delays and diversions in promises. Secondly, faith is still the right response we have a covenant too, the new covenant. And it too is signed and sealed in blood, Luke twenty two twenty, And likewise, the cup after he is eaten, uh, saying, this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. In the new covenant, Christ fulfilled the requirements of all the other covenants by a life of perfect obedience. He also bore our penalty for covenant breaking as he himself was broken on the cross. So with the new covenant, it's unilateral again. God did it in Christ. Christ did it all. So that the only response, really, is faith. That's all we can do because Jesus has done it all. We trust in God's promises to us. And because of Jesus' death, that too can be credited to us as righteousness. Righteousness. We can stand before God righteous because we trust in his promises. Not that faith is something special or has any value in in itself. It's that our faith is in God that gives it infinite value. We can do nothing but trust God has done it all as he promised in his covenant. And that means that no matter what you've done, no matter how good or bad you've been you can be declared righteous by faith. And if we're a Christian here this morning, you are still righteous by faith. Abraham will make plenty of mistakes after this passage. But through the whole of his life, it was his faith that made him right with God. It was faith that made him right with God in his best moments, and it was faith that made him right with God in his worst moments too. Faith in God is what counts. So the right response is faith. And then finally, what this passage really is there to remind us, God always keeps his promises. We see these promises that God makes to Abraham fulfilled. Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation From all tribes and peoples and languages, standing there before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are the children of Abraham. We're told in Galatians that it's those who have faith like Abraham that are the children of Abraham. That includes people from every nation, every tongue, tribe, and language. So one day, Abraham's descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. They will live in God's place forever. They will enjoy blessing beyond their wildest dreams. Sounds hard to believe, doesn't it? How do we know that that will happen? Well, the Bible tells us And God himself has sealed it with his own blood on the cross. The lamb who we worship for eternity is the lamb that was slain to purchase this for us. So if we ever doubt that God will keep his promises, see what he has done with making a covenant with us with his own blood by sending Jesus to the cross that we might share in that wonderful future for the whole of eternity. If you ever doubt God's promises, look at the cross and long for his return. Come Lord Jesus. Amen.